Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, it's the start of a new year and there are many who might like to put 2022 behind them, but it's really exciting to look ahead. It's a great time to think about the future plan. We've all got very good intentions, going to the gym, all that stuff. But let's think about getting on top of our investing for 2023. And I'm super happy to be speaking to Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, always one of our most popular guests. He joined us for exactly this topic last year. You absolutely loved it. It was by far our biggest podcast for the year. Very excited to do it again. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Gemma, you're always very kind. It's always a fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So let's talk about 2022. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> like, it was wow. Before we we started recording, we were talking about the fact that you could never have predicted, you know, war in oh, Europe man. for the first time in 70 years and yeah. energy prices through the roof and eight interest rate increases that even the Reserve Bank didn't see. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're we're off the roller coaster yet? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? I, I, every year since 2020 has been one of those, hey, wait till the end of next year and then we'll have X happen. And it's one of those, we, we, I, I did notice the end of last year, we just stopped actually uh, worrying about <laughs> worrying about what might come next. So, uh, no, we're not off the roller coaster, mate. I think we probably are starting this year with maybe a more a greater sense of what we think is likely to happen. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of we're necessarily more likely to be right about it, but we've kind of got that... In, I don't want to say all the bad news priced in, but this time last year, as you say, no sense that inflation, well, maybe a little bit of a sense, that inflation might possibly be coming. Maybe rate rises are going to happen. Fast forward 12 months, beginning of 2023, and we're sitting here saying, okay, well, we know rates are already up a long way. Maybe there's a couple more to come, maybe a couple more, depending on how bad things get. Uh, inflation is already here. So, I mean, there's always a chance for negative shocks, but I'm I'm actually, you know, I'm an optimist by nature, Gemma, and your listeners probably know that too. I'm actually happier being the optimistic bloke when everyone's pessimistic rather than kind of, you know, being surrounded by optimists. Because that's when you look around and go, hang on, who's thinking here? Uh, so I kind of like the fact that, you know, rates are up, inflation is up, not that I like those being the case. But when you start with that position, when you're in that space already, and you say, right, now what do we know? I think we're going to be more volatile. Uh, we've seen over the past few months, markets move on rates, markets move on inflation, markets move, as you said, on on things like war in Europe and other things. So that's going to continue to be the case. But I do think to some degree, at least we're in a more realistic position. Um, the bad news is known or assumed or likely. Maybe there's a recession, maybe there's not. Maybe there's more of uh, a downturn, maybe there's not. Uh, but we kind of know those things are in the frame. And probably that just simply means we're a bit more prepared in 2023, if nothing else. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Certainly, we were not prepared for rates to be normal by the end of this year. (laughs) If I look back to, uh, we've got an extraordinary markets team and economics team at NAB. The guys are great. They work really hard. They were way ahead of the Reserve Bank in terms of their Mm -hmm. expectations of where rates would be. But I think they were, even then, too conservative. So they, they, they were being very aggressive relative to the noise around them when they were writing this stuff back at the beginning of 2022 and sort of March and April, they were saying, right, that's it. We're going to be, you know, well in the twos, but they were saying we would be, you know, we would be tapped out at two ish. That would be normal. And we're, (laughs) 
like we're running hard past those numbers, right? Do you, yeah. I think do you think people thing, are think... feeling it now? That's They're like, okay, this is normal now. We're back to this. This is what it is. No, not really. <laughs> um, humans are great at recency bias, right? And that's why it was so hard to imagine inflation at 7% or rates, the official cash rate at least, at 3.1% and maybe going higher because when you're at 0.1, when inflation has been dead, quotes, dead for 35 years, it's very hard to imagine that we might move outside the bounds of our recent experience. And I think that's, you know, there's a benefit of being a bit older. It's, it's you know, remembering the, I wasn't working during the 80s, but remembering the early 80s and that inflation shock, the oil price shocks, the fact that inflation was a thing. You know, it's one of those things, as soon as someone says something's dead, you can be very, very sure it's coming back soon. When when inflation is dead, uh, you know, it's the old Monty Python sketch. It's, you know, it's just sleeping. Um, so I, I think, you know, we... I think a lot of people are still expecting rates will go back down at some point. I think when we talk about what normal is, and even though the RBA said very clearly, they got, as you said, the rates forecast timing very, very, very wrong. But they also have said, look, normal, sorry, neutral is between 2 and 3%. Now, we're at 3.1 now. If you think about that, then we're only just above what they think is probably neutral. If rates go back down or eventually when they go back down after probably going up a bit further first, um, I don't know how much lower they go, but... It's. I think a lot of people still are not quite adjusting to the fact the last 20, 30 years was actually not normal. That 0.1 interest rates, official cash rate, was not normal. Yes, the RBA said it was emergency levels. I think we kind of intellectually knew it. But how many people were saying uh, borrowing money, company debts, asset prices, 0.1 isn't normal. This is not, you know, we're not going back to those levels. So I have a feeling that while intellectually you might all understand that, you know, we were in very strange, unusual times. I think it's very likely that, you know, we are not going to go down a whole lot more from here eventually. We'll go up again, as I said, and come back down a bit. But neutral is two to three. When the economy needs neutral, that's what we're going to get. Uh, I think a lot of people are still expecting there will be some uh, magical future time when rates go back to where they were in 2022. It's such an interesting perspective. And as you say, the challenge is for people to forget the recent past mm -hmm. and look back over 50 years and go, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. You know, oh, that was different. Um, you know, it's hard to appreciate how anomalous the last little bit has been. Uh -huh. And I'm sure I do apologize to everyone. I feel like we've probably covered rates and inflation 10 million times more than anyone <laughs> expected this year. Also, also said, you know, when I studied economics, we talked about inflation for four years and then I came out of university and never talked about it again. <laughs> exactly, uh, yes. You'd see CPI on the news and it'd be a mm -hmm. one-liner. CPI uh -huh. was 2.1% for the year. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, like it was just so boring. No yeah, one discussed yeah. it. It had no material impact on anything. But we're moving into a discussion about 2023 and yeah. planning ahead as an investor. And even though it feels like it's been done to death, rates and inflation still seem likely to have an impact, right? Mate, I think they're the only game in town. I, I think, you know, inflation doesn't matter until it does. And interest rates don't matter until they do. Uh, and I think while you while you say, you know, we've done it to death, and we probably have, I, I think you need to keep it in mind. I don't think it's a case of great new year, let's forget about what happened last year. You've got to start by saying rates matter to the price of the assets that I buy. Rates, and I won't go into the algebra, uh, but, you know, rates matter to the, the amount of debt a company can affordably carry and what it can do with that debt and what my investment fees looks like with those rates. Inflation matters because pricing power matters. If you are a business that can't pass on higher costs, 
you have no choice but to deliver lower margins, lower profits. And again, if you're an investor, you're looking at that business saying, hang on, I need to know what that business can deliver so I can adequately price, buy, um, you know, sell at some point those assets when that matters. And I think, you know, it, it, there's the old quote, I think it says Lynch or Buffett, somebody, you know, if, if you spend 10 minutes thinking about the macro, you've wasted five minutes. And I think I was always of that view. And I, I probably will go back to that view at some point. But if you didn't understand, if you don't understand that we're not in a new normal, we just went back to the old normal that we kind of had a break from for 20 years, which sounds silly to say, but you know, a world where there is inflation, a world where interest rates go up as well, or you know, up as well as down. Um, you know, we're getting back to what you know the '80s and early '90s told us was normal economic circumstances. And while seven percent inflation isn't normal, um, the idea of having some ongoing inflation, the idea of rates going up and down, not just down and then further down and then further down, these are the things I think investors need to get their heads around and make sure they know as they consider where to put their money, where their money is already invested, by the way, um, how companies will operate. These are just really, really important factors. So you don't necessarily need to have a macro forecast. You don't need to know where rates will be by the end of the year or inflation will be by the end of the year. There's the old line about, you know, pre prepare, don't predict. And I think that, to my mind, is you need to understand the range of possible outcomes, how exposed you are as an individual, your companies are, and those companies' asset prices, in other words, the share prices, but other assets as well, um, you need to have that mental model in your head to get this sort of stuff, not 100% right, but but roughly right. If you ignore it, I think you will ignore it at your peril. Yeah, that's such a good way of thinking about it. It's it's real and it's happening and it has implications mm -hmm. for what you do, but you have to prepare for what you're going to do, right? You can't just panic and oh. put your head in the sound. Yep. In the sand, not in the sound. What am I talking about? Put <laughs> uh, your head in the sand. So with that in mind, because it does matter this year, what are your thoughts for investors who want to get on the front foot for 2023? Yeah, this is great. So I think I would encourage investors to be, it's always true, but maybe more true now because of what I've just talked about is don't extrapolate. Think very carefully about the sort of business that you own in the sort of environment we are going to, we're in already and we're going to be heading into. And again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying predict. I'm not saying you have to know exactly what inflation is going to be or exactly what, you know, how far prices can go up or rates might go up and then back down. You don't need to know that specifically. But what you need to know is there's a range of potential outcomes in the economic environment, in the business environment in which we live and exist and invest. And then take that to your investing. So I guess what I'm saying is, is stress test your assumptions. Um, don't assume things are going to go back to where they were a year ago as soon as this has passed, because that's not going to be the case. Um, central banks are not going to have inflation under control probably all year. Hopefully, it gets closer and closer to under control. But that's going to be a, a decent time as, as inflation will continue for a decent time. And again, I don't think we're going back to, I don't know for sure, but I don't think we're going back to the, the last 20, 25 years. I think we're going back to the 80s in terms of, you know, just inflation is a thing. And, it, and it, the, the pressures... Uh, positive pressures that have driven inflation down to what seemed like a permanent solution are ebbing away. And so if you want to be on the front foot, think about the sort of companies you own or might want to invest in. Think about their resilience in the face of a range of economic circumstances. If you look at your company and say, if this happens, they'll be great. But if that happens, it'll be terrible. I think you're probably, I mean, you're welcome to take those risks. You're welcome to, to build your portfolio accordingly. But I, I don't think that's the smartest way to go about it because I don't think you want to be in a situation where 
you you have only one way to win and a very clear way, unfortunately, also to lose. I think that scenario of um, if, if, if rates are higher or if rates are lower, how will this business fare? If inflation remains high or if it comes down, how will this business fare? It reminds, I think, a lot of investors of what used to matter. We've seen this with tech companies over the past 18 months. You know, when money is free or effectively free, they can get funding for anything and everyone's happy to pile in and it all doesn't matter. Uh, but we've also then seen more recently that unwind. When venture capital funds are hard to come by, you see businesses go broke. When profits are three, four, five, six years away in a low rate environment, it kind of doesn't matter because the time value of money doesn't change that much. But if in- inflation is five, six, seven percent, and you've got to wait, five, let's say, let's say five percent for five years. Now, even without compounding that properly, just simple mathematics, that's a 25% decrease in the value of that dollar. Now, that means you're effectively paying 25% less for those companies and and justifiably so than you were 12 months ago. So these things are real. And I think just, again, you don't, don't have to obsess over the macro, but just make sure you understand how your businesses are likely to fare in a range of environments and and maybe just make sure that range is big enough to allow for the available permutations of what might happen. Yeah, I think that's such a critical point and it's such a different way of looking at things relative to the last three Mm -hmm. or four years. And we don't see particularly wild behaviour on our platform Investors are fairly prudent, to be frank. Like, you know, most of the trades are stuff that you would go like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, But the last three or four years have been extraordinary. This is a question completely without notice. But uh, (laughs) there have been so many bizarre investment choices. And I say bizarre, but there'll be people who feel they're perfectly legitimate and therefore balk at that term. So (laughs) we looked at NFTs and we looked at a lot of the cryptocurrencies and now Mm -hmm. we're seeing dramatic fraud playing out on a global yep. scale. Yep, yep. Do you, because, and I'm saying this for a reason, actually, a couple of weeks ago I was giving a presentation and hosting a panel uh, for the ASX and one of the questions was, is that now the time to buy crypto? which I thought was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and needless to say, the professionals on the stage who invest via the ASX were not super keen on the idea of investing <laughs> in crypto. Uh, yep. But there are those who have that recency bias and look at yep. the things that went to the moon, you know, in 2021, even late 2020, mm-hmm. and go, well, surely they'll come back. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell um, the people who've got that on their 2023 to-do <laughs> list? <laughs> Good luck. I, I look honestly, Jimmy. You're, I, I'm, I'm. I want to try and be a little bit mindful, but I think bizarre is the right term. I think the idea that an NFT is worth something is crazy, and maybe it will be. And so here's the thing, right? Art is in the eye of the beholder. An NFT that represents art, there is some, there's some validity to that, right? Why is an original Picasso worth more than a than a print of a Picasso? Now the answer would be because it's the real thing. He said, "Well, that's fine, but but from, from a viewing perspective, a high enough high enough you know facsimile is indistinguishable from the original. Now, why do you care? And this is because I know. And so there are some there are some really, I, I it's 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 strange on one level, but also really 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 normal on the other level, which is humans like you know uniqueness. We like to feel special. We like to have the original of something. When I say we, I don't have any Picasso's personally. I don't know if you do, uh, but uh, you know the the idea that that something is." worth more because it's the first one or the original one, that's got a long, long, long history. The first, you know, 
um, FJ Holden run off the production line or the last Monero or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to go with that those, we, we give those things value. So if at some point enough people think it's worth something, that's worth something. If I'm prepared to pay more than you are for something, then it's worth something more to me. But the concept of NST, just because they can exist, uh, just because they are unique, uh, you know, I, I can have the original copy of my nine-year-old's, you know, art at school and no one's going to pay me a fortune more for that because it's not desirable by enough people. And so if you're looking at those things, you are taking a big punt. The same with cryptos. I think, you know, FOMO kind of, the fear of missing out, has been a thing for a long time. I've got to say, as a, as a share market investor, part of me, and this is a bit of, you know, not very nice, part of me was pretty happy that crypto and NFTs exist because it meant that the speculation that would normally come with that sort of FOMO stuff that otherwise would happen on the, on the stock market actually happens somewhere else. And so we probably avoided the worst of that speculation on the ASX and on the world stock markets because there was this other thing that if people wanted to get overexcited about something, hey, go over there, play in that sandpit, don't play in my sandpit. So I think there's, I think there's some, there were some benefits to that. The, the simple reality is that there is, you know, you, there was something like seven or eight thousand individual crypto tokens at, at one point. I don't know how many there are now. There could be double or half for all I know. Um, they are almost certainly all going to be worth zero. Some one, two, three may well have some ongoing value. But again, try and work out what that value is, is really hard. And, you know, I, I'm I'm someone who never, ever uses, and I'm not a chart reader, I don't use technical analysis at all personally, but you, you have to look very far to see. I'll take two examples. I own shares in Amazon, you know that. Uh, Amazon's fallen something like 50%, about 20, 25 times in the last 25 years, right? And then it's gone back higher and higher and higher, even though those drops have happened almost yearly since it listed. On the other hand, AMP has fallen and halved from 20 to 10 and then half to 5 then half to $2.50 and half to $1.25 and probably probably halved again at least one more time, I think, for going back up again uh, a little bit. So, you know, the fact that something falls doesn't mean it's going to necessarily go back up. It's not a particularly reliable indicator. And I think in our industry, sometimes we do ourselves and our um, followers, customers, clients, whatever, readers, uh, listeners, a massive disservice because... Yes, it's true that sometimes you get a great business that falls for either good or bad reasons, but recovers nicely. And you can make a lot of money doing that. But to, I think, suggest or believe that that is a thing that must happen. Buffett famously says the problem with turnarounds is they often don't turn. Um, you know, I'm not saying they can't either, but I think just because it's gone down, don't believe that it's going to bounce back up, particularly if you have an asset, no, I'll say in air quotes, I'll be a bit um, uh, a bit out there, uh, like crypto or NFTs or something else, um, just because they, just because the FOMO did, you know, carry tulip bubbles never got back to the to the to the tulip bubble price. Put you know, or the uh, the South Sea Company shares the same way. There, it is possible things simply get too expensive for unjustifiable reasons. Don't believe they'll go back up just because they've come down. So we might scratch that off our to-do list for 2023 if anyone's got it on there. With a very, very, very thick black pen. With a thick, Uh, not not a pencil? Thick black pen. I think of oh yes, and, and maybe rip the page up. And no, look, you know, it's just it's just <laughs> you think about fire. investing, right? There's there's limited amounts of capital you've got. And your job as an investor is to thoughtfully invest that capital in the places where you are most likely to get good long-term returns. And however you do it, whether you're a trader or a technical analyst or uh, you know, whatever you however you're doing it. The goal needs to be the same, right? You're trying to maximize your value over the long term. The other thing, though, is, again, I'll throw another Buffettism at you. You never want to go back to square one. You know, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've got to, in, do you, how long you've been investing or you've got left in your investing career, going back to square one is stupidly, stupidly expensive. 
because you can never make up those lost compounding years. And so, yeah, if you want to take a bit more risk with part of your portfolio, knock yourself out. But unless you've got a really high likelihood of a positive expected value, in other words, the risks you're taking should end up with you having more money afterwards than you do before, and, and a really high likelihood, right? And you say to people, right, what is the likelihood and what's the rationale for these things to go up? And honestly, most people, I'm offending a whole lot of people here, Gemma, and I, I partly apologize, but I also partly don't mind because I, I want to call it pretty straight here, is just because more people might use a, a thing, a crypto token. Does that mean it's more valuable? Not necessarily. And on what basis are they going to keep using that thing? Well, who knows? And again, there are a whole lot of true believers, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, deliberately offend them, but I think the the rationale for tell me, explain to me, literally write it down. Why is this thing going to be worth more in 5, 10, 15 years? What would have to happen? What needs to come true? And why is that likely to be the case? And most of the time it ends up with, well, I just think it will. And that's fine. But know that that is not a an investing decision. That's a speculation. And that's fine. You can, you can intelligently speculate. But let's call it for what it is. The vast, vast bulk of most people's portfolios should be, in my opinion, and we can't give personal advice, but generally speaking, factored towards maximizing their long-term wealth creation without taking silly risks. So that then frames up everything else we do with our money for the year, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> which may or may not be intelligent speculation. Let's call it investing. What that. are you excited about for investing this year? It's not crypto, clearly. No, so look, I. So let, let me start. Let me start broad and narrow down. Um, you know, I'm a massive fan of the Vanguard index chart. If if your listeners haven't, I'm sure they have. If they haven't yet, just Google Vanguard index chart. There is a spectacularly good 30 year chart that Vanguard produce. And over the last 30 years to June 30, 2022, um, the market had turned 10 grand into 130 grand. And so, honestly, the thing I'm most excited about is also the most boring thing, which is next or this year. Sorry, will be. Uh, one of those 30 years. And I, I, that, you know, I feel a bit flippant saying that. I don't know which of those 30 years it'll be, but it'll be pretty close to one of them probably. And the next 29 after that will probably be roughly the other 29 of those 30 years. And investing sensibly for the long term will be astonishingly successful and value creating in my opinion. Again, no promises, no guarantees. I'm not allowed to do that and I wouldn't. But you know, the, the part of it is actually not being too short-term in your view. And I think a year is short-term. So you know, what am I excited about? I'm excited that people who continue to add money regularly to their investing accounts, diversify properly, invest intelligently, uh, reinvest their dividends, all those things that we know we should do. I am very excited that hopefully 2023 will be one of those. Maybe it's even a down year. But if you have it in that context of over 30 years, 10 grand became 130, by the way, even more in the US market, um, then that's that's the first thing, which again, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out answer, but it's not. It's genuinely, I think, you know, don't expect too much of 2023 because maybe it's spectacularly good, maybe it's terrible. Whichever it is, you should be in it for the other 29 years as well. So that's that's probably the first thing. If I wind it back then to be a little bit more, a little bit more thoughtful, uh, I'm kind of actually excited, at least a little in part, uh, that I hope investing becomes a bit more normal. And and I guess I'm thinking about the way I was taught to invest, the way you're probably taught to invest, most people are taught to invest is sensible, thoughtful business analysis and then paying the right price for that business. And as we've kind of just talked about, the last, I don't know how many years, but certainly certainly since the outbreak of COVID and probably a little bit before that as rates continue to come down, it's really been strange since the GFC. Um, you know, growth has been in the ascendancy almost permanently and not that's not a bad thing, but it's happened largely because the circumstances have been unusual. 
And I think growth company investing is great. I have some growth companies in my portfolio as well as some more um, value kind of oriented investments. But it's been one of those situations where the, 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 the conditions for growth had been there because things have been so weird in the overall economy. Again, low rates, lots of government stimulus, lots of those things going on. I have no political view on that, by the way. I think they did the right thing. But it's kind of distorted markets a little bit. And I think if you look about 2023, we've got some inflation. We've got higher interest rates or, or normal interest rates, actually not higher, but higher than normal, higher than recent, sorry. Uh, back to normal interest rates, uh, normal-ish kind of inflation, hopefully by the end of the year, where business fundamentals matter again. And I think what that does for the for the investor who's listening, who's like, you know what, I like investing. I'm prepared to put some time in. I'm prepared to understand what makes businesses tick, what business models work and what don't work, the sorts of sources of value, I'll call it, um, in terms of, you know, why will my company keep winning? Um, what sort of returns can I get on my money? How should I value these assets? I think we, we end up in more kind of, you know, normal times. And I think that's really, really good for the, for the business analyst and again, I don't mean professional, I mean any investor who's going to say, you know what, what does Woolies do? How does it tick? How does it make its money? Where, where, you know, why or where is it going to grow? Those questions that you have to answer for these things, I think we're in more normal terms, in more normal times. And I think that's a really good thing for, for most investors who want to put the time in. So there's that. So let's go smaller again. Uh, and then a little bit contrarian as an investor. In saying that, I said before, you know, I'm I like being the optimistic guy. Whatever else is pessimistic, just I, I feel better in that. I'm not optimistic by nature. When everyone else is optimistic as well, I'm like, oh, this feels a bit uncomfortable. Everyone's everything's a bit expensive. Uh, but when I'm the optimist in a room of pessimists, I feel really good. And I I got to say, at the beginning of 2023, I'm looking around at some of these bombed out share prices and saying, hey, some are bombed out for very good reasons. They were rubbish businesses, way too expensive, pushed up way too high by people who didn't care enough about the fundamentals of the business or the market or of, of share prices. But now I'm looking around and saying, hang on. Uh, and what, one area I really like right now, Gemma, is, is retail. And, and that's, again, people are saying, what, what do you mean? Aren't we going to have an economic downturn and maybe a recession? And I'm saying, yeah, maybe. But the prices for some of these businesses, I think, are way too low given their long-term potential. So yes, maybe we have a recession this year, maybe we don't, maybe there's a downturn, maybe there's not, maybe we jump out of the gates and, and, and make 2023 a great year. I don't know which is going to happen. But I do think if you look out three, five, seven, 10 years and say, some of the, JB Hi-Fi is a great example. I don't own those shares, but it was for a while on a single-digit PE. I don't know what it is right now. Um, at that sort of price, even if there's a recession, even if JB Hi-Fi's profits fall by 20% this year and then come back and then grow from there, I don't see a scenario where they're not at at least the level they are now and probably a lot higher um, in five or seven or 10 years' time. And if they are, and we look back and say, you mean I got to buy JB Hi-Fi at single-digit multiple of earnings in 2023? Man, how crazy is that? Why didn't I do more of that? And so I think you don't have to know what's coming next, or you can even say, let's assume there's a recession next. If and when they survive that recession, end up more profitable, more um, successful, in the years ahead, uh, I think we'll look back at some of these prices of today and say, man, we missed a big trick if we didn't buy some shares in some of these companies that we think are going to be bigger and better even after whatever happens in 2023. I think, I mean, it's a bold statement, <laughs> retail, <laughs> which I like. Yeah. Very cool to be bold at this point in time. Absolutely. Any other specifics? Because we know that's what everybody's here for. Mm -hmm. that you think people should be looking at in this environment? If you've got a bit of money left over after Christmas mm -hmm. or someone was kind enough to give you an, nice, yeah. uh, a potential share portfolio, where yeah. would you be going? Um, so, you know, again, I'll start macro, mate. I, I think 
a lot of people listening, if they're not comfortable picking individual stocks, should at least make sure they invest that money in a broad index-based ETF, which is the most boring answer in the world. Uh, but put that money to work is, I guess, my point. Uh, and not because I know what's coming next, not because I know the market's going to jump 15% in the first six months of the year or not, just because mathematically, the market goes up over time. It goes up a lot over time. And for my money, um, I'm always fully invested, by the way, despite market gyrations, because I believe mathematically that makes sense. If you look at history, uh, being invested earlier is, has been better consistently than being invested late. Not every year, not every month, not every day, but over time, and mathematically, you're, you are better to have invested earlier rather than later. So at least invest the money is, I guess, my first point. Um, uh, retail, I've said I liked a lot. I think there's some, some real opportunity there. I think what we're also seeing is you want to look for businesses that have really significant pricing power. So I, I'm going to half answer your question, Gemma, by actually answering it in the negative or, or, the, or the reverse, which is I would be really careful of businesses that don't bring pricing power to the table. And I'm thinking about commodity providers here. I'm thinking about uh, miners and drillers in particular. There'll be plenty of people listening who love those stocks, and that's completely cool. But if you can't control the commodity price, or even more to the point, if the commodity price continues to fluctuate around a reasonably normal level, now maybe they're not level now, which is maybe the point. So there's maybe some downside as well. But if you've got a, a price you can't control and costs that are escalating, that's generally not a particularly attractive way to invest. So I'd be I'd be really, really careful there in terms of just, just what you think the future might hold. The same for any other commodity type producers. Uh, I'd be careful of airlines right now. I'd be careful of, I, I've long not been a fan of business like Amcor or Ansel. They have very short run um, benefits uh, from some of their IP, some of their intellectual property, their new products, their new innovations, but they get taken away really fast. And again, the cost of the raw materials will continue probably to increase for the foreseeable future. And if they can't pass that on in prices, uh, then you want to be really, really careful. So look for businesses that, that benefit. The other thing I'd say too, actually speaking of um, speaking of retail, thinking about those businesses that maybe actually benefit from the, the if there is a down trade economically. So as much as I'm looking out three to five years, not worrying about the next little while, I think there are some businesses that stand to benefit. I'm a shareholder in Domino's. Uh, I think you know the, the five ten dollar pizzas compared to eating out. Uh, it's just a probably a, a pretty good sweet spot to be. I expect if we do end up with more economic challenges ahead that the, the affordable luxury kind of area is somewhere you want to go and look. Um, again, speaking of retail, funnily enough, uh, La Visa is another business I don't own, but I but I do think it's really fascinating. The fast fashion idea, the really, well, I call it fast fashion, it's called costume jewelry, it's what we used to call it, before it was uh, not cool to say. Um, that's a really affordable, I won't even say luxury, but it's an affordable way to kind of accessorize and make it happen for certain people in certain demographics. Not me, as it turns out, Gemma, uh, but, but plenty of people love it. I think that's a really useful way to think about how that might work for um, for individuals in terms of you know how they're spending their money, what they're going to spend that money on. And also those part of the market that isn't necessarily impacted by higher rates. If you're not paying a mortgage, yeah, inflation's an issue, but you're not paying higher rates. So there's some there's some value there as well. So I think that's worth looking at. The other one, uh, back just to, to a theme, long-term winners are really, really, really attractive. You can if you can do moderately well for a very long period of time as an investor, you're doing you'll do very well overall. And if you can by businesses that are in that space. They just continue to compound away, grind away, to get bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more successful over time. I think there's an opportunity there. I really like businesses like ResMed and Cochlear. Uh, these are companies that I think have multi-decade runways. And so if you're looking around your portfolio and saying, you know what, I'm kind of over volatility right now. Not that I'm promising these share prices won't be volatile, but think about Cochlear, right? It's, it's a medically diagnosed condition. Uh, Cochlear is the leader in the space. They are in a business that, 
um, is going to have more and more people diagnosed over time because medical science gets better. The world is becoming more affluent. So the developing worlds, as they become more affluent, will be able to afford some of this technology. And if you're a cochlear customer, you're a cochlear customer effectively for life, right? It's, it's literally an implanted device. And so this business is helping people here again, which is spectacular. But there's also some nice returns for investors. Same with ResMed. Sleep apnea is a, is a continuing issue. Uh, the world's getting fatter. We, we're getting older. Um, the 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 growth in diagnosis of sleep apnea continues to be huge. So these are companies, I think, with literally multi-decade uh, runways. They're not going to be spectacular growth. They're not going to give you afterpay-like returns over six or 18 months. Uh, but these are just great businesses that I think have a really great long-term future because people will just simply say, you know what? More of this is being diagnosed. These companies are the leaders in their field. They're going to continue to get more customers. ResMed resells consumables. Cochlear has upgraded sound processes and other things. So you're getting customers, if not for life in both cases, um, for a very, very long time. And as long as you remain the brand of choice, that's a pretty good way to keep that uh, keep that cash rolling. Yeah, I love both of those stories. It's nice when you can invest in something that you can see having a material impact for people as well as when they're uh, making use of money over the long term. That's always nice too. So one thing we discussed before we came on, and I love that you're open about this because I think as we head into a new year, one thing that gets neglected, you know, you're known for stock tips. People just want the next big thing, right? They want the next afterpay. Absolutely. But there is one thing, and it might be multiple things, but there is something that you can do that will have just a dramatic impact and it's not sexy and it's not fun, but goodness, <laughs> it's important. Do you want to talk to me about structuring? Let's talk yeah. about getting your structure right. It's a it's, might take a few hours, might take a bit of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the impact that can have. This is massive, Gemma. So... Look, honestly, the financial regulations are way, way, way too complex. And it makes a lot of money for a lot of people who are in the advice business because it's so difficult to navigate for most people. And so, you know, I had my druthers in a magic wand. I might change some regulation to make things a whole lot simpler for a whole lot of people. Um, that being said, that can also provide opportunity, that com- the complexity if you know what you're doing. And let's think about some of the some of the options. Now, you know, this is not my my sweet spot. I'm a stock picker by trade, as you said. Uh, but Think about, so let's, let's just a simple one, superannuation. The tax effectiveness of superannuation is through the roof. If, you know, people will want to have money outside super, and they probably should, I certainly do, um, for my individual investing as well as inside super, but maximizing your super contributions, the the, the 15% tax, and then at this stage, at least zero in retirement is just stupidly generous. Now, I think that's got some public policy issues, which is a whole different podcast, but um if you can put maximize those super contributions, the upside there of just saving that money in tax is almost certainly more than you could do yourself with good stock picking, good stock selection, ETF selection, anything else, right? So just the sheer value of knowing that and taking full advantage of that is the first one. Next, you've got things like you know family trusts and companies. Now, I'm not going to go into the, the detail of that sort of stuff. Again, that's a different podcast and for someone who's more expert than I am. But thinking about how you invest, what your tax rates are, where you can actually save some money in tax, um, income splitting between a, a working and a non-working spouse or spouse at different tax rates. If you uh, have someone in, the, in a couple that's on the highest rate and someone that's on, the, on a lower rate, um, being able to use a family trust to, to send that money to the lower income earner can save a small fortune in tax, particularly over the long term, right? And why you make a great point about structure, because what you do now will have an impact, not just this year, probably not even this year, 
but in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years time, because being able to compound inside a tax effective structure is going to, the tax savings in 2048, or whatever you want to choose, um, are going to be phenomenal if you invest in the right ones today. So family trusted companies are important, superannuation, super, super important, super, super valuable. Just think about where the money's going. Then of course, things like, you know, franking credits, always topical, always, uh, you know, uh, controversial. But think about the sources of your returns as well. Now, I'm not saying just invest in dividend paying companies or don't. But again, the difference in a tax rate for a dividend versus a capital gain, often very, very different things. Now, these are Australian uh, companies, obviously. You only get franken credits if you're an Australian taxpayer and you're investing in Australian companies and only if they pay fully frank dividends. So do all that research. But again, thinking about the impacts. Like I'm someone, Gemma, who never, ever, ever says, invest or don't for tax reasons. I would never buy a share for tax reasons or property for that matter, just for tax reasons, right? Too many people say to their accountant, how can I save money on tax? What they should be doing is saying to their accountant, how can I maximize my after-tax returns? Now, that feels like the same question, but it's not. I'd rather pay a million dollars in tax and have a few million dollars left over than pay no tax and have $100,000 left over, right? See, it should be obvious. Um, Minimizing tax is not the goal. Maximizing your after-tax returns is the goal. And that has two things. One is, what are you investing in? But also, how much tax are you paying? How are your investments structured to maximize not only the return you get, but the after-tax return after considering the tax benefits of choosing the, the right structure for you? Now, it can be expensive to get set up. There's heaps of information available on the internet. Personal advice is still pretty expensive out there, unfortunately. Uh, but if you have a just have spend a little bit of time thinking about it, because the way you start can have a really meaningful impact on where you end up. Yeah, I love that. And it's the world I came from and I believe in it strongly, but I think sometimes we forget it because markets are more interesting to talk about. (laughs) Much more interesting, much more going on. Two other ones that I did would love you to talk to. So rising rate environment. I told you this story before we started recording that I was in a taxi the other day and the taxi driver said to me, the government needs to do something because my mortgage goes up $100 every month. (laughs) I didn't really know how to respond because there were multiple issues with that statement, not least the fact that the government's got nothing to do with it. But it's <laughs> people do have mortgages or they have debt. And often that is something you want to think about as a, you know, New Year's resolution type situation. The other one is fees. You may or may not have alluded to these earlier. So fees are so dramatically important. We all know the, the superannuation ads and all that kind of stuff. And and, you know, some of the research suggests that your superannuation balances in particular, which is over super for a second, can be between 30 and 40% higher by taking the lower fee option rather than the higher fee option. So understanding the role of fees is just so important. Look, I'm a stock picker by trade. I said that before. I'll say it probably again at least one more time. Um, but I, and I'm going to try and help our members get a little bit more than the market return, right? I'm not going to get massively more. I'd love to think I could, but I'm not Warren Buffett. No, neither is anybody else. So I'm going to try and help them beat the market by a little bit on average most years over time. And hopefully that's a net benefit that they get from using our service. But what I can't do for them is I can't put, you know, I can't keep their fees under control. The, the costs of your investing um, are really, really important. One of the great things, by the way, give Nabtrade and others a wrap, um, you know, bringing down the cost of brokerage has been a huge benefit. Because that's just dead money otherwise, right? So so the more you can take advantage of that and, and do a really good job with that is really important. But fees generally, whatever your investment approach is, whether it's a, a higher fee ETF, look for the lower fee ETF. If you're trading too frequently, maybe have a think about that. If you're paying too much in brokerage, uh, choose some other options. If you're in a managed fund, again, think about how much of your return is, is being taken away because of the fees you're paying that you otherwise could avoid. And 
I'm not, I'm an anti-fees, by the way, Gemma. I would happily pay a massive fee if I can get even more money, right? If someone can give me a, a huge return, I'm happy to pay them a little bit more, maybe even a lot more for that purpose. If I can, again, it's like the after-tax returns, right? The after-fee returns are what we should care about. The challenge is that for all of us as a group, investors as a group, fees are a net detractor from our total group returns. It just makes makes absolute sense to try and minimize those fees as much as you physically can. Again, not to not to hurt your returns. Again, it's always the after-fee return that matters. But very, very few, some, it depends on the numbers you look at, but somewhere around 75 to 85% of managed funds, for example, fail to meet the market after those fees are taken into account. So just be really, really careful. By all means, go and find a fund manager you like. By all means, pick your own stocks. By all means, buy those and sell those stocks when it makes sense to do so. But don't think, we're kind of inclined to think, oh, fees are only half a percent or 1% or whatever the number is. That is a really big proportion of your annual return. And if you get that right, it's a really easy free kick or it can be a really um, subliminal or, or not obvious uh, cost to your total investment returns over a lifetime. 100% while we're on percentages. 100% agree with that. <laughs> nice. I hear what you did there. Yeah, it was nice, wasn't it? So let's talk about mortgages and let's talk about debt because I think it, we'll uh, we'll wrap it after that. But I think it's so critical if you have debt mm. and maybe we include buy now, pay later debts in this too. Mm-hmm. Getting on top of those yes. if you want to really yep. make something of your finances, but also in a rising rate environment, suddenly the stuff is mattering even more, right? My goodness. So look, and this is, you know, you mentioned, you talked about, you know, what's exciting, what's boring and what's not. Structure's not very exciting. We want to talk about markets and companies and that's really cool. Um, but you've got to embrace the boring stuff. You really have to do it because, you know, when rates are zero, any money invested, as long as the, you know, as long as you make some money, is you know, the hurdle rate is really, really small. And we all want to think we're investing and adding to our portfolios and getting larger. And that's all really, really important. But the debt question is really important anyway, because uh, frankly, it makes your financial circumstances riskier. Now, again, there's some people out there with margin debt and others saying, no, I love my leverage because I get this and I get that. Um, I had people talking to me asking questions two years ago saying, but hang on, rates are, rates are almost zero. Why wouldn't I borrow because I can do this and that and the other? Uh, and it turns out that if you borrowed a year ago and you put money in a NASDAQ ETF, for example, that's now down, well, the NASDAQ itself is down 30-odd percent in 2022, and you're now paying whatever the whatever the rates are for that debt, um, very good chance that was a very bad outcome. Now, it's not to say you can't use it intelligently or, or responsibly, but the hurdle rate of that continues to go up, uh, particularly, by the way, non-deductible debt. So we're talking about your margin loan debt is at least the interest rates is, uh, the interest is tax deductible. Again, speak to your accountant. I can't promise you that, but generally speaking. Um, but if you've got you know household, if you're paying mortgage debt and it's five and a half, six, six and a half percent, um, you know, the 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 returns you're likely to get from the stock market of nine, nine and a half percent a year, that gap is is continuing to narrow. And so just be just be careful about. Yes, I want you to invest. Yes, I want you to build for the long term. Yes, I want you to, uh, you know, build a portfolio outside just your home because both those things are important over the long term. Just also be mindful of the potential return you get by paying down that debt, which isn't very exciting. And that's, by the way, not even including credit card and personal loan debt. If you've got that stuff, absolutely pay that down. Don't, you know, I want people to invest, but I really don't want you to invest if you're also carrying a 25% credit card or, you know, I know, with 10, 12% personal loan at the moment. So just be really thoughtful about that. Also, too, though, Jim, I want to talk about company debt because the debt that our companies carry is also now going to be a bigger drag on the bottom line. I kind of alluded to that at the very beginning. Um, if you, you know, if a company had borrowed at two, two and a half, three and a half percent, something like that 12 months ago, 
they might even still be paying that because the terms are probably locked in. When that rolls over, that's going to be refinanced at significantly higher rates. And you've got to understand the impact on the bottom line. I love the transurban business, for example. But even though its prices are linked to inflation and revenue might go up three, four, five, six percent, uh, if the interest rate meaningfully increases, and let's go from one percent to two percent, if that's still one percentage point more, you're doubling your interest cost, right? Even and at the top line, sure, you're going, you're putting revenue up five percent, but if you've got a five percent increase in revenue and a doubling of cost, that particular cost line then you need to know the impact that's going to have on your company and its ability to deliver the same profits you're used to and the same dividends potentially that you're used to. Now, I don't make any forecasts for Transurban in particular, but it's just an easy example. Think about other businesses that you own. Debt is, again, we talked about the new normal and the old normal. We kind of learned not to think about debt for the last 20 years because it just didn't need to worry too much. The cost of that debt was actually coming down, if anything, and it was pretty manageable and there was plenty of money going around it's going to become a more important consideration for companies and it should be for investors as well. Oh, that's so important. And for those who were not around at the time, if you look at some of the big blow-ups during the GFC, it was often businesses that had a lot of debt and were rolling and could not fund it. It was it was an extraordinary time. <laughs> for those of us who were around, it was extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Watching how dramatic the impact of rolling debt is in a in a volatile environment. At yeah. that point in time, yeah. the issue was not being able to get credit. Uh, <laughs> this time it's just being able to afford the credit. That's a different issue. But still, and by the very way, relevant. Too, mate, by the way, too, again, it helps to have a bit of a, uh, well, I was going to say gray hair or less hair in my case, um, over time because, you know, it was the debt of the 1980s that blew up the bonds and the scases. You know, and for your younger listeners who don't know those names, then you have my eternal disdain because you're younger than me, and so I hate you for that. Uh, but, uh, but, but in all honesty, you know, the, we, we've been here before. History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, as Mark Twain said. Um, and I think for investors in particular, having just a, a reasonable working knowledge of kind of what the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years have done, it, it's interesting in its own right, but it also gives you a clue of the sort of mistakes that humans tend to make over and over again. We're not very original with our mistakes, uh, and they tend to come in in relatively – reliable site, not not cycles. Again, I'm not talking about timing the market or timing your investing, but, um, you know, uh, money gets easy, then people borrow too much money, then money gets more expensive, then people go broke. It happens over and over and over again. Uh, speculations happen over and over again, different industries, different companies, but the same human frailties emerge uh, every seven or 10 years or so. So just do yourself a favor, go back and look at some of that history because it is a salutary lesson. Uh, I, one of my favorite quotes, Gemma, which is kind of almost almost appropriate but fun, is there are old pilots, there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. In other words, uh, if you bowl too frequently, you eventually will come a cropper. And if you make it to, to the gray-haired stage, you've probably learned not to take too many unnecessary risks. And I think that may be a lesson we can learn from history as well. I love it. And if you are keen on reading any uh, market history, I guess, and stories of bubbles and crazy behavior. Michael Lewis is a great place to start. Oh, he wrote yeah. Moneyball, but he's written a heap of books. Lies Poker was his first one, which is just yeah. extraordinary. Uh, but he's, he's got a super accessible style, so you can kind of read about some of this stuff, enjoy reading the book, and get it get a feel for it while you're there. Scott. It's always so amazing to have you. Motley Fool, you provide research for investors. You often provide commentary in the media. And when I say often, I mean three or four times a day. And <laughs> uh, you produce, even your emails are amazing, right? So where can people go to find out more about you guys and what you do? Uh, 
And you're very kind. Thank you. Um, so look, obviously, fool.com.au is, is the website. There's a whole lot of free stuff there. Uh, you can join our mailing list where you do get the emails. I write about two or three times a week. Full, absolute, full disclosure up front. You will also get a lot of marketing material from us. So don't go into that blindly. Um, we we do, uh, you know, our business is, is a marketing business. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you sign up for those emails, you will get a whole lot of marketing as well. I think the services are worth joining, by the way, but I just don't want to mislead anybody. It's not just a, a an email um, newsletter. There's a whole lot of marketing that go with us. I'm all over the socials, um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's hard to be a finance person on Instagram, Gemma, can I say. Not much we do is particularly visual and exciting, and there's no yoga poses of me on the beach, thankfully for everybody. So uh, maybe maybe Twitter and Facebook might be the best places to go. Uh, but, yeah, you, you'll, you'll see me around. Um, there's plenty, plenty of good stuff, plenty of uh, free content as well as some of the other stuff that you can get from us if, if you so desire. I love that. Yeah, no, I don't. Instagram for uh, for finance people seems to be <laughs> confined to the under 35s, <laughs> which is yes, probably the best. Good Let's that. be honest. <laughs> exactly. as, a, as a not under 35 myself, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, thank you so much for joining us. It's absolutely been my pleasure, Gemma. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us also. We love hearing from you guys. We love getting your feedback. We know Scott's super popular because you tell us. Uh, We love your suggestions for future topics. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please just email us at yourwealth.nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.